If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Bradbury 100, where once again I'm doing one of my chronological Bradbury episodes. So far in this series, we've covered the first two years in which Ray Bradbury was writing as an amateur, 1938 and 1939, and so far he's had eight stories published in fanzines. We've a long way to go. Some people have said to me, have you figured out how long it's going to take to cover every story? And the answer is no, I haven't. But I do know that if I continue at this pace, it's going to take me a very long time because, you see, Bradbury published over 400 short stories in his lifetime. And he also published around 90 books in his lifetime. Some of those books, admittedly, were repackagings, you know, remixes of short story collections and so on. It's not that he wrote 90 original books, but nevertheless, he was a prolific writer. And so far, I've only scraped the surface, and we haven't even got to the true beginning of his professional career. That's still a little way off in 1941. Anyway, let's continue with the journey. Let's get started with today's topic, which is the year 1940. And what I can tell you about the year 1940 is that Ray had nine stories published that year, all of them in amateur or semi-professional magazines. He didn't get paid a penny for any of the works that I'm going to discuss today, but he is getting close. The nine stories I'm going to cover today are the following. The Fight of the Good Ship Clarissa, The Maiden of Jerbu, The Tale of the Turtle Twitch, Luana the Living, The Piper, The Last Man, the Tale of the Terrible Typer. It's not the heat, it's the hue. And Genie Trouble. Now this is going to be Ray's busiest year ever as an amateur writer. Uh, incidentally, I have looked at the statistics of Ray's publication history and I can tell you that his peak year for short fiction overall is going to be 1950, because in that year... He has 24 pieces of short fiction published. 24 stories. That's an average of two stories per month. What you can see there is Ray's belief regarding how to write and publish short fiction really pays off. He used to say that you should start writing a new story every day. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you should finish the story that day, but you should start a new story every day. By the end of the first week, you've started five stories. That's if you take the weekends off. And what Bradbury 
typically did once his career was fully underway is that he would start a new story pretty much every day and then later that day he would do some further work on a story that he had started on a previous day, if you see what I mean. And if you keep that going long enough, there will inevitably come a point where not only are you starting a new story every day, you are finishing a new story every day. And once you finish some stories, you can send them out to magazines. And after one year of doing this, well, theoretically, you'd have hundreds of short stories in circulation going around the various magazines. That in itself doesn't guarantee that you will have any success. And I know if I did this, I wouldn't have very much success at all because I'm not a very good short story writer. So, of course, you also have to have talent for these to be good stories which will sell. But by having a process for his short stories, Ray was able to get enough material in circulation that by his peak year, 1950, he was getting published on average twice a month. That's an incredible achievement and an incredible pace. OK, so today we're looking at 1940, when Ray hadn't quite reached that level. As usual in the discussion that's going to come, I'm drawing on certain reference books. Uh, so I'm indebted always to Ella and Tuponce, the authors of Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, for the chronological listing of Bradbury's story appearances. I'm also indebted to the other book uh, or book series that Ella and Tuponce worked on, The Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, a critical edition, particularly volume one, which reproduces some of the stories that we're going to be talking about today. And I'm also indebted to the more recent book, The Earliest Bradbury, which makes a really good go of collecting these early works together, often in facsimile form. And then there's a more general resource, fanac.org, which is the online collection of science fiction fanzines going back to the earliest days of science fiction fandom. Let's start with the first story, The Fight of the Good Ship Clarissa. This appeared in early 1940 in Ray's own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia, which we've mentioned previously, and this story doesn't have a byline, so technically it's anonymous. But as I've mentioned before, with items published in Futuria Fantasia, pretty much the entire fanzine was written by Bradbury himself. And so we can assume that everything in there is his work. It's just that sometimes items appeared without a byline, and other times they appeared with a byline, which was a pseudonym, and sometimes it was his real name. Good Ship Clarissa is one of the anonymous pieces. Now, for some reason, the fight of the Good Ship Clarissa doesn't appear in the earliest Bradbury. But all of the Futuria Fantasia issues survive, so we do have access to the story. And I'll give you the first paragraph. The space rocket Clarissa was nine days out from Venus. The members of the crew were also out for nine days. They were hunters, fearless expeditionists who bagged game in Venusian jungles. At the start of our story, they are busy bagging their pants, not to forget their eyes. 
a sort of lull has fallen over the ship. Uh, Note, a lull is a time warp that frequently attacks rockets and seduces its members into a siesta. It was during this lull that Anthony Quelch sat sprawled at his typewriter, looking as baggy as a bag of unripe grapefruit. Anthony Quelch, the cosmic clamour boy, with a face like turned linoleum on the third term, busy writing a book. Fascism is communism with a shave. For which he would receive 367 roubles, 10 pazinkas, and incarceration in a cinema showing Gone with the Wind. So, you get the idea, we're on a spaceship. It's humour. The rest of the crew seem to be partying upstairs while this character Quelch is busily writing, and then suddenly they land on Venus, and they dash out into the rain, because, of course, that's the science fictional cliché of how Venus was seen in the 1930s and 1940s, a rain-covered planet. Uh, Actually, there is a story from much later in Bradbury's career called The Long Rain, which quite atmospherically builds upon that idea. Anyway, the crew of the Clarissa go out onto Venus and they suddenly get attacked by Venusians. And Quelch tells us that there are 20,000 Earth men fighting just two Venusians. But then the Earth men are killed off one by one. And just like that, the story is over. All of the Earth people are wiped out. The, the two Venusians are victorious. And the punchline to the story, such as it is, has one of the Venusians turning to the other and saying, this shouldn't happen to a dog. And that's it. Once again, it's Ray Bradbury just trying to be funny, writing a single page of a story, uh, making fun of some of the clichés he's seen in other science fiction stories. But if we're looking for evidence of Bradbury, the really creative science fiction writer, this is a bit of a stretch, but we could see that final section there where all of the Earthmen are are wiped out by just a handful of Venusians. We could see that as being a dry run for a story like Mars is Heaven, also known as the Third Expedition, the uh, Martian Chronicles story. If you remember the first few chapters of the Martian Chronicles, Earth people make repeated attempts to land on Mars and they are repeatedly knocked back by the Martians. They're killed, they're imprisoned, and they just don't succeed until the fourth expedition. So, as I say, I think it's stretching a bit to say that the fight of the good ship Clarissa is an early draft of Mars's heaven, but that's the only interesting thing that I can draw from this very slender story. So we should move on. And the next story from 1940 is The Maiden of Jerbu. And the byline for this story, uh, as it appeared in the fanzine Polaris, is Bob Tucker and Ray Bradbury. Uh, Tucker being the editor of the fanzine. So it's an early instance either of a collaboration or perhaps of rewriting. This one is reproduced in facsimile in the earliest Bradbury, And once again, it's a very short piece, a single page. And again, I'll give you the first paragraph. I found her in Jerbu, 
on one of my many journeys about the world. She who was as beautiful and as glorious as her native land, tall and perfect, reflecting the coolness of the icy blue sky, fair of hair like the bending, billowing wheat through which the wind crept on invisible feet, eyes mysterious and brooding, yet capable of a sudden clear sparkling like the moonlight on the waters of the lake, skin smooth and tan, glowing with health. Indeed, a fairer maiden could not greet a weary wanderer. A fairer city could not beckon from the horizon with shimmering alabaster walls. That's quite some sophisticated language being used there in this very brief piece of fanzine fiction. The story goes on to say that the narrator took this creature of the soil for my mate, made her the bride of eternity. And then they sail off back to the narrator's strange Atlantis. Now the maiden isn't very happy to have been dragged away from her home. But nevertheless, that's what happens. The narrator leaves her in Atlantis and then goes off on further nomadic adventures. And then he says in Turin, he chances across an odd and evil looking document, the Book of the Dead, and he finds her name inscribed in blood in the book. So he hastily heads back to Atlantis, only to find that it doesn't exist anymore. It's sunk. It's, it's Atlantis, after all. Uh, he's lost everything. And that's the end of the story. The moral of the story, difficult to say, but I suppose it's if you're going to take up with a beautiful maiden, don't drag her to a place she doesn't want to go. Although it's a very short piece, it doesn't have that flippant humour that we've come to associate with these very early Bradbury pieces. I'm tempted to see this one as really being just an outline for a story, something that a good writer could then expand into a full story. And it's not bad as, a, as an outline, and it's not badly written either, just a few paragraphs making up a single page. Quite what was contributed by Bradbury and what was contributed by Tucker is difficult to say. But this is, for all its brevity, it is one of the better early pieces. Now we move on to the third story of 1940, The Tale of the Tortle Twitch. And this appeared in a fanzine called Spaceways in April 1940, under a byline, Guy Amory. And uh, I, I don't know anything about that pseudonym. It seems to be the only time that Ray used it, and it might well be a kind of a house pseudonym for Spaceways, the fanzine, but I'm not sure. Incidentally, the table of contents lists the tale of the Turtle Twitch not under the short story heading, but under humorous features. So I think that gives you a clue as to what to expect of this very slight piece. Uh, you can find this one in The Earliest Bradbury. Here's the first paragraph for you, just to give you the flavour of it. Mr Smirch was feeling miasmal. At ten second intervals, he paused as he walked down Park Avenue and burped 
from back of a carefully shielding hand. He glanced nervously from right to left and smiled weakly. His wife, evidently embarrassed by Smirch's sordid burpings, walked three or four blocks ahead of him. So this Mr Smirch needs something to stop him burping. He tries uh, soda water, uh, just ordinary water. He tries breathing in 52 times. And then he notices entirely randomly that he's being followed by a little Martian. And the Martian asks him if he's feeling unwell. And Smirch just belches back at him. So the Martian suggests he, he should try a little atomistic disruptor pill. And Mr Smirch hands over a million dollar bill to the Martian, as you do. And the Martian goes off. And now Mr Smirch doesn't take the pill. He carries it around with him. He shows it to his wife. But he carries on burping. And when he gets home, his wife is so absolutely fed up with him that she tells him to take the damn pill and shut up. So he takes the pill and everything goes quiet. The pill has worked. Mrs Smirch then goes to the closet where Mr Smirch was last seen and he's not there. He's disappeared, although there's a little puddle of flesh on the floor. And then she burps, and then she notices that she's being followed by a Martian, who she marries, and they live happily ever after. Hmm, thank you, Ray, for the tale of the turtle twitch. I'm not quite sure <laughs> still what a turtle twitch is. The story doesn't say. I assume it's the Martian, but it could possibly be the pill. Who knows? Now, for a while, this story is somewhat interesting as you're reading it because you think it's going somewhere. And uh, when Mr Smirch vanishes, that's actually quite a nice idea because the, the pill has got rid of his burping because it's got rid of him. That's quite funny. Um, and the fact that he's a pool of flesh on the floor reminds me very much of a story that Ray is going to write in a few years called Skeleton. You know, the one where a guy has all the bones taken out of him and he collapses into a sort of gelatinous heap. And I suppose there's also something satisfying about the circularity of the story that it starts off with Mr Smirch being afflicted and meeting the Martian and then Mrs Smirch being afflicted and meeting the Martian. But the problem I have with it as a story is it's a whole load of random events that don't amount to anything. There's no subtext either. There's no real character development. This is something we keep seeing in these very short early Bradbury pieces. It's, it's as if the story is being made up as he goes along. And it's quite possible that that is the truth of it. Um, and certainly if you look at Futuria Fantasia, there is some evidence there that what we're reading is first draft because there are lots of typos in the stories. You would have thought if Bradbury had redrafted any of his work, he might have eliminated some of the typos. But hey-ho, he's not being paid for any of this. He's simply exercising his imagination and there are some fun ideas emerging from it. 
Let's move on to the fourth story from 1940, which to me is much more substantial, both in terms of quantity and quality. And it's called Luana the Living. And this one appeared in the fanzine Polaris in June 1940. That was a fanzine edited by someone called Paul Freehafer, who was about two years older than Ray. And he was a research chemist engaged in rocket research. But he died at a very early age. He was just 26 when he died uh, of a heart condition in 1944. You can find Luana the Living in the Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, a critical edition, volume one, where it's in the appendix as one of these examples of Ray's early writing. And in that fully typeset version, it runs to nearly six pages. So it's clearly a much more substantial piece than many of these other single page pieces that we've been looking at. Uh, you can also find Luana in the earliest Bradbury, where it's reproduced both as a facsimile and fully typeset with a new illustration. Once again, I'll give you the first paragraph of the story to give you the flavour. Before I conclude this mundane existence, bid the terrors of the alien farewell and take my leave of all things light and dark, I must tell to someone the reason for my suicide. A horror clings malignantly to my brain, and far back in the recesses of the subconscious it burns like the pale flame of a candle in the tombs of the dead. It steals my strength and leaves me weak and trembling like a child. Try as I will, I cannot rid myself of it, for the night of the full moon forces its return. Now, I think Luana the Living is a strange story for Bradbury. It focuses on a character who is making his way through a jungle in India, in the Himalayas, in fact. And the narrator talks about how he makes his way through this mountainous region. He tries to get a guide to help him find a way through. But after escaping from a strange, gibbering character, he's unable to find anyone else who's suitable as a guide, so he sets off on his own. And the events he's describing uh, take place a year before. So he's, at the beginning of the story, he's on the verge of suicide, but he's telling us of events from a year past. He cuts his way through the jungle, and he feels that the jungle is growing all around him. Uh, he says, I sensed movements about me. It seemed that the whole forest was stirring to life. Little leaves slithered underfoot, slender saplings wavered and shook, and the mighty jungle giants themselves bestowed and fluttered their leaves to the ground in the dark. It seemed that things grew threefold. The speed of daylight shot up and bloomed by some mysterious means. Some very fluent and fluid language here. As he moves on, he spies something ahead of him. What he thinks is 40 stone statues in the soil. And he says they look malignant. And in the centre of the stones, uh, what he describes as another presence. And he realises that all of these stones are actually creatures and they're all bowing towards the moon. It's as if they're under some hypnotic spell. And they swing about, they dance, they chant, they scream. 
And the man at the centre of all this activity is that character he encountered earlier in the day when he was looking for a guide. And here he's gibbering once again, but he gradually becomes intelligible. And he seems to be saying, Great living Luana, give us strength, protect us, keep us from the unholy spirit of the white man. Now at this point, the narrator, who we assume to be a white man, becomes angry. He steps into the middle of the ring, holds out his gun and orders them to stop. And they do, briefly, but then they charge at him, saying, destroy the invader. He shoots one of them and the others all scatter. He continues firing and then he sees one last native kneeling on the ground, praying to Luana. And the, the narrator, now having no bullets left, screams and runs away. And he sees Luana, the moon, glaring down at him. So he's almost become convinced by all of this that uh, Luana is a living, controlling entity, just as these natives think that that is what Luana is. He gets back to civilization. he catches a plane back to America, he gets some rest. But the very next time there's a full moon, he finds he can't sit outdoors. He's kind of haunted by what he's seen and he has dreams and nightmares about it. And he says, Of nights I sat bolt upright and quaked to see the moon in all its odious whiteness, cling upon the curtain of night to bathe my chamber in platinum. So frightened I became that I summoned a maker of tapestries and instructed him to hang upon the windows curtains of ebon colour to shut out forever that pale and sickly-hued torrent of luminescence. And even though he goes to all this trouble to block out the light of the moon, he can still hear the what he calls the mourning of the wind, and he can hear what he calls those devil savages. And eventually he locks himself away. He says that he's uh, been in his room for a fortnight, so two whole weeks. And he believes that when the clock strikes 12, he will die. He goes to look in the mirror, and what he sees staring back at him is the gibbering native character that he had described earlier in the story. So he has essentially become that character. Now, Luana the Living is one of the longest of these early amateur stories, and it actually has a plot. It has development, and it has some very good descriptive language. Some of it's a bit over the top, of course. But I think with Luana the Living, we are seeing that Bradbury is capable of being a good writer. The story itself is really very derivative. It's uh, explorers in jungles. Uh, Bradbury might be influenced here by Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, his Tarzan stories. He might possibly be under the influence of Rudyard Kipling and his stories of colonial India. There's certainly a touch of the Edgar Allan Poe to parts of this story, and it's also possible that he's channeling um, Lovecraft to an extent with this tale of existential dread. And while I wouldn't class this in any way as one of Bradbury's better stories overall, it is certainly one of the better amateur stories from this very early part of his writing career. 
when Luana the Living was published, Ray would have been 19 or 20 years old. And he seems to be developing quite well at this point. Moving on further into 1940, and we come to The Piper. And this is another story that was published in Ray's own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia. And it appeared there in September 1940, uh, under the byline of Ron Reynolds, which is a name we've come across before. He's used it in Futuria Fantasia previously. It's one of those pseudonyms he adopted to make it look as if more than one person was contributing to his fanzine. Now, I've seen the Piper referred to occasionally as Bradbury's first Martian tale. And it's probably that status that has led it to be anthologised. In 1970, it turned up in a book called Futures to Infinity. It was also developed by Bradbury into a professionally published story that came out in 1943, so three years later. Uh, and that was in Thrilling Wonder Stories, one of the pulp uh, science fiction magazines. And when we get to 1943, I will compare the professional version of the Piper with this earlier amateur version. You can find the amateur version in the Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, a critical edition, volume one, uh, where it appears in the appendix. And it's fully typeset there, of course, and it runs to about four pages. You can also find it in facsimile in uh, the book version of Futuria Fantasia, which came out in 2007. Uh, but oddly, it isn't included in the earliest Bradbury, and I don't know why that is. I can only guess that the editors had a limited amount of space, and therefore they couldn't include every single early Bradbury story. Incidentally, the professional version of the Piper from three years later has also never been collected in a mainstream Bradbury book, but it was once anthologised in a book called The Future Makers. Oh, and one more thing. I, I say that The Piper is sometimes classed as a Martian story, and as you'll see in a minute, it is, but the story is not included in a limited edition book from a few years back called The Martian Chronicles, The Complete Edition. I've said before on the podcast that that particular book claims to be complete, but it is not complete. Anyway, let's have a look at The Piper. It begins with dialogue. Lord, he's there again. He's there. Look, the old man croaked, jabbing a calloused finger at the burial hill. Old Piper again, as crazy as a loon. Every year that way. Then we're told who it is who is doing this shouting. It's an old man, and at his feet is a Martian boy who has thin reddish feet and large green eyes. And the Martian boy asks the old man, why does the piper do this? And the old man just says, it's because he's crazy. So this piping sound from the piper on the hill squeals around in the dusk. It echoes all around them. And the boy asks a series of questions. Where did the piper come from? And the old man says he came from Venus. He's an exile. Uh, the piper was something like a leper. 
He was the epitome of all culture on Venus, but then the Earth people came along and for some reason they outlawed the Piper and shipped him to Mars to live out the rest of his days. And there's some dialogue about how many Martians are still alive and the answer is a few million, maybe. And Bradbury uses some familiar language for anybody who's read the Martian Chronicles. When the Martian boy asks, where are all the native Martians? The old man says, out there, beyond the mountains, beyond the Dead Sea bottoms, over the horizon, and to the north in the caves far back in the subterrane. Now that phrase, Dead Sea bottoms, comes up again and again in Bradbury's Martian stories. It's one of his go-to phrases for conjuring up Mars. Uh, along with his descriptions of the canals. And as most Bradbury readers probably know, he modelled his conception of Mars on what he had read in the stories of Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, you know, the John Carter of Mars stories. And those, in turn, were inspired by the pseudoscientific description of Mars provided by the astronomer Percival Lowell, who believed that there were canals on Mars. Anyway, back to the Piper. We're told that Earth now owns all of Mars, and there are three Earth cities on Mars, containing about a thousand people. But nearly everyone from Earth is there to do physical labour. They're miners. They dig out minerals from the surface of Mars. And the old man says there's no culture, no art, no purpose they're just greedy, hopeless earthlings. And then as the piper continues playing his wild music, the old man says he feels that something is going to happen soon. And the reason is that the piper used to only play occasionally, but for the last three years he's played until dawn every night of every autumn. And the old man says music is the language of all things, intelligent or not, savage or educated civilian. So what we're seeing with the Piper really is a fascinating precursor to the Martian Chronicles. You may remember in the Chronicles that the arrival of the Earthmen is seen as a serious threat by the Martians. The first Martian to encounter them, Mr K, kills them. The second expedition to Mars sees all of the astronauts locked up because they're considered to be mad Martians rather than beings from another world. And then the third expedition is treated to an illusory version of Earth and then killed by the Martians. So this story, The Piper, could almost fit into that same chronology. It, it presents Earth people as an impending threat to Mars, a destroyer of Mars, and possibly also a destroyer of Venus, because Earthmen have uh, visited Venus, found things there that they don't like, and exported them to Mars. Bradbury at this point seems very conscious of what it is that our species does or has done historically. It's invaded new territories, it's claimed things for itself, it's redistributed stuff and people, for that matter, around the, the place for the convenience of trade or making money. Um, and also in this story there's a tension between the mundane and the artistic. The piper is, well, he's possibly seen as some kind of madman, but 
he is also the only creative artist that we know of on the planet Mars, in distinct contrast to all of the Earth people who are just there to dig minerals and destroy the place. So here we are in the latter half of 1940, and the young Ray Bradbury, just 19 years old, is beginning to turn out some interesting stories that are precursors of what is to come. None of these are fully formed at this point, I would say, and the Piper still feels as if it needs, well, a heck of a rewrite, to be honest. But things are looking promising for this guy's future career. Moving onward in 1940, we come to a story called The Last Man, which appeared in the first issue of a fanzine called The Damn Thing in November 1940. Uh, the Damn Thing was produced by one of Ray's friends in the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, a guy by the name of T. Bruce Yerk. Uh, Bradbury's contribution is a very brief piece, less than a page of text, one of the shortest of these early shorts. And I'm sorry to say, it sees Bradbury returning to being the wise guy, the comedian of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. And uh, this piece is so short that you probably can't really call it a story even. But it's been classified and counted as a story in the appendix of Ellerin Tuponce's Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, so we will honour it as a short story. But it's so brief. In fact, I feel entirely justified in reading you the entire story. It's only three and a bit paragraphs. So here we go. The Last Man by Ray Douglas Bradbury. He was the last man. As he stood on the crest of the hill, he was made aware of this all the more forcibly. The world was his. And for what use? He could run all the autos. He could rob all the houses. Everything was his and not a living soul to tell him what or what not to do. Yet, withal, he was lonely. Something seemed to be missing from his life. He knew not what. A vague aching below the stomach tormented him. Something was missing. He looked out over the hills and valleys, and the brightly lit terrain echoed back. Something was missing. Then his eyes caught sight of an object down by the stream. His pulse leapt to his head. His breath quickened. A million emotions thrilled through him, and he started to run. Down the hill, faster and faster. God, how he ran. His lungs were bursting. His temples throbbed and his heart threatened to explode. And still he ran faster, 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 faster than a bat out of hell. For there... At the bottom of the hill, by the creek he had seen. The Last Woman. There we go. What a great story from Ray Douglas Bradbury. Actually, it reminds me of a Martian Chronicles story, The Silent Towns, where we're with a man who more or less is the last man on Mars, and he is desperate for company, so he starts phoning around, trying to find somebody else on the planet, and eventually he does. Now, The Last Man is 
very short, very simple, and really quite obvious. Although, in those days, the word man not only meant a male individual of the human species, it could also mean any member of the human species, uh, as in the expression, where no man has gone before, from the Star Trek universe, which today we see as being a sexist phrase, and that's why Star Trek has changed to where no one has gone before. But certainly back in the 40s, in calling this little story The Last Man, the reader might validly assume that this was the last person. You see what I mean? And with that in mind, the final line of the story then flips that interpretation for us and locks us into the understanding that the man in the title is not just the last person, but is the last male of the species. I'm really over-egging the pudding with this, but I think there is a slight subtlety in the use of language which makes this very slender story a little bit better than it would otherwise appear to be. Suffice it to say that The Last Man, being such a very brief story and such an obvious one, has never been collected in any of Ray's books, and just about the only book you will find it in is The Earliest Bradbury. There must have been something in the water in November 1940, because not only did that month see the first occurrence of the fanzine called The Damn Thing, it also saw the first issue of one called The Fantasite. And that's where our next Bradbury story appeared. It's called The Tale of the Terrible Typer. It's not been collected in any of Bradbury's books, but you can find it in the earliest Bradbury. And it runs just over a page, and it's one of Bradbury's stories that is mostly dialogue. And it begins with dialogue as follows. God, what an idea! Colossal! Stupendous! Hideous! Wade Sherp gloated over the clicking keys of his typewriter. Why, this story will be so good that Street and Smith will pay me five cents a word! Now, if you're not familiar with Street and Smith, they were a publishing house that specialised in pulp magazines, and one of their best-known magazines was Astounding Stories, which was the leading science fiction magazine of the day, under the editorship of John W. Campbell. Anyway, the story goes on. We've got this Wade Sherp, who insists that what he's just written is going to be stupendous, and the narrator of the story says, well, hold on a minute, wait till you've finished it. And the narrator steps out of the room because he can't bear to think of Wade Sherp typing away on his typewriter frantically. But he hears some shouting and some very frantic clacking on the keys of the typewriter. So he goes back into the room and he gasps at what he sees because the room is empty. Where's Wade? But the typewriter is still typing all by itself. And it's revealed that Wade Sherp had thrown himself into his work so much that he's actually become one with the typewriter, swallowed up into it. OK, again, not a great story. But even so, it does feel a slight step up from what Ray had been submitting just one year before. He's describing things better now. 
He's taking on point of view in his stories. And this one, very cleverly, gives us a narrator who is separate from Wade Sherp. So instead of just giving us the experience of the character, it's giving us what happens to the character through the viewpoint of another character. And very specifically, the narrator leaves the room so that some of the action is taking place behind a closed door. So there is some level of sophistication in the way the story is being told, even if the story itself isn't the cleverest piece of fiction in the world. Moving on, we come to It's Not the Heat, It's the Heat. And this story appeared in the magazine Script on the 2nd of November 1940. And uh, incidentally, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction by Ella and Tuponts notes this as being Bradbury's first appearance in a, quote, commercial general market periodical. My reading of that is that this isn't just a fanzine that's sent out to anybody who requests a copy, but is an actual publication that you would maybe see on a newsstand. Once again, with this story, we're talking about a piece that hasn't been in any of Ray's books. And curiously, it's not in the earliest Bradbury, but it is in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, a critical edition, volume one, where it runs to just over two pages. And it actually begins, the first line of the story is the same as the title of the story, because it begins, it isn't the heat, the stranger was saying, it's the heat. As you might guess by the interrupted who, obviously it's meant to be humidity, by that interrupted who, the stranger in question never gets to complete his utterance. And the reason for this is that he gets knocked out by someone called Waldo. And Waldo says, I hate cliches. And this, in fact, is the single defining characteristic of this central character, Waldo Summers. Um, Shortly afterwards, someone in the story says to him, hot enough for you. So Waldo pushes him down a manhole. And I have to say, I have some sympathy for Waldo, but uh, I'm also one of the biggest users of cliches, especially in conversational <laughs> situations. So I have, I have mixed feelings. Anyway, Waldo inevitably ends up before a judge who basically says, you can't go around hitting people. And Waldo gets a sentence of 60 days and the judge finishes his summation by saying crime doesn't pay. And of course, that's a cliche. So Waldo starts swinging his arms at him, trying to uh, attack the judge. So they send a psychologist to come and look at Waldo, because obviously this dislike of cliches is interfering with his ability to function around other people. And under therapy, Waldo speculates that maybe all of this began one day when he heard an uncle say, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, the psychologist comes up with a scheme for helping Waldo. He basically wants him to fight his impulse to hit people. And he deliberately confronts Waldo with a series of cliches. Uh, Red as a beet, ugly as sin, hot as hell. And Waldo is required to not react to these. And gradually, he is able to bring things under control. And after 40 days, he is considered to be safe 
So he's released and they let him out. And to prove that he's safe, the psychologist walks ahead of him and shouts a series of cliches really loud and Waldo doesn't bat an eyelid. So good for Waldo. He's overcome his affliction. Not so good for the psychologist, however, because he is now afflicted with the condition and he's last seen on a street corner shooting at somebody who's just mouthed some cliches. So once again, Bradbury trying to be funny, sometimes succeeding, sometimes not, trying to be clever with words, and he's managed to spin this situation out into a full story, so full credit for that. There's some sense of character development. It's not just plot for plot's sake, although he is using the same basic device that he used on one of those earlier stories, you know, the one where the man couldn't stop burping. And there is some attempt to tell a story in an interesting way. And what I'm reminded of with this story is a later one called The Murderer. And that's the one about the guy who can't stand modern technology and he goes around destroying uh, telephones and things like that. The difference between the two, of course, is that it's not the heat, it's the humidity has no bigger meaning. The, the moral of this story is just don't use cliches. But the story also seems to recognise that they're almost inevitable. They're part of humorous banter. Whereas the later story, The Murderer, has somebody behaving in a similarly antisocial way, but it has a strong theme. And in that case, it's the theme of don't get sucked into technology for technology's sake. And finally, we come to the last story of Ray's to be published in 1940, and it's called Genie Trouble. And this is his second appearance in the fanzine The Damn Thing from December 1940. Once again, never collected in any Bradbury book, and it's not in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, but it is in the earliest Bradbury where it's reproduced in facsimile. And incidentally, that issue of The Damn Thing also has a piece of cover art by Ray Bradbury. It's got his signature in the corner. Um, it's an image of a screaming or a shouting man with his arms held up in the air. And in the earliest Bradbury, they speculate that it might be a drawing of The Damn Thing's editor, T. Bruce Yerk. Genie Trouble is two pages, so again, a fairly short piece, but longer than some of the things that Bradbury has been publishing in these early years. The byline is Ray Douglas Bradbury, and there is an editorial note at the beginning in, in which the editor says that he turned to Bradbury and said, please write me a little story for the damn thing, and if you don't hurry, I'll revive Hollabocken. And you may remember Hollabocken was in Bradbury's first story back in 1938. Genie Trouble begins with a very short paragraph that goes like this. Mr Tweak had just been to the movies. In fact, he had just seen The Thief of Baghdad. My, how he had liked that picture. And Mr Tweak goes home, he goes to take a bath and he finds that there's a genie in his bath. Not a big genie, it says, but a little genie. 
and he asks him, what are you doing there? Mr Tweak thinks the genie can't possibly be real, and in fact he begins to doubt his own sanity. Mr Tweak says, how am I supposed to have a bath with you sat there? And the genie says, well, that's your problem. And Mr Tweak just can't think of what to do to get rid of the genie. He refuses to leave, so Mr Tweak just pulls the plug and the genie gurgles down the plug hole. And that's it. That's the end of the story. <laughs> this is Ray's last published story of 1940 and I think it's probably the worst one. There's almost nothing to it. It has no substance. It has no subtext. What it does have is the ever-present Bradbury humour. But whenever Ray was writing one of these off-the-cuff stories, he would head for humour. But, as we've seen in a couple of other stories from 1940, he is capable of better. He is capable of putting together stories which have structure, which have plot, which have character development, and which have intelligent and sometimes poetic use of language. Now that we've had three years of Bradbury's amateur writing, 1938, 1939 and 1940, we are starting to see a writer of promise emerging, but still bogged down by these, shall I say, childish stories and attempts at humour. But in the very next year of Bradbury's writing career, 1941, he's going to receive his first payment as an author for the professional publication of his story, Pendulum. Next time I do a chronological Bradbury, we'll cover that year, 1941. But for now, thanks for listening to Bradbury 100, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100